0: Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the Disputes team in London and one of the general editors of our textbook Class Actions in England and Wales, published by Sweet and Maxwell. I have with me David Bennett, who's one of our new partners in the Disputes team in London, specialising in health and safety, product liability and high value personal injury claims. He's also one of the assistant authors of the textbook. This is the sixth of our series of podcasts to mark the launch of our second edition of the book. And in this episode, we'll focus on product liability group actions. So, David, I think listeners will be very familiar with the sorts of product liability class actions that are brought in the US, where a claim can be brought on behalf of everyone that's bought a defective or or dangerous product. But can you explain how product liability class actions are brought in England and Wales?
1: Yes, thanks, Moira. And hello, everyone. Uh, In this jurisdiction, unlike the US, there is no general opt-out class action mechanism that allows a single claimant to sue on behalf of all of those who have been affected by a particular wrongdoing, such as, in our case, where a product on the market doesn't meet the required standards and causes personal injury or property damage uh, without the affected class having to be identified or brought into the action. Opt-out class actions more similar to the US model are possible for competition cases under the specific regime that applies in the competition appeal tribunal, but not more broadly. It's also possible for claims that fall within the representative action procedure, which allows a claimant to sue on behalf of others with the same interest. Um, The precise ambit of that particular procedure and what claims can be brought under it is somewhat unclear at the moment, following the High Court's decision earlier this year in Commission Recovery and Marks and Clark, which has been... um, discussed in previous episodes of this podcast. But for the moment, I think we can say it will be unlikely in most cases that product liability claims can be brought on a wholly opt out basis because of the differences that are likely to arise between the claims, particularly in relation to loss and damage. So in general terms, claims will need to be issued on behalf of individual identified claimants on an opt in rather than opt out basis. Um, The claims will then be managed by the courts, often by way of a group litigation order, or GLO, which will identify the common or related issues of fact or law which arise in the different cases. So, for example, whether a particular product is defective. Uh, And the GLO will put in place a group register to keep track of claims that raise those issues and will generally appoint a lead solicitor to represent the claimants. That said, quite often these cases are managed by the court in a very similar way to where there's a GLO, but without actually making a formal GLO. And one consequence of that is that the list of group litigation orders on the court website sometimes gives a misleadingly low impression of how many of these sorts of claims there have actually been. Anyway, whether a GLO is made or not, these cases operate as essentially a collection of individual claims, which are managed together rather than a single claim brought on behalf of the entire class that's been affected, as you'd have in in the US.
0: Thank you. Um, And how does the fact that these claims need to be brought on an opt-in basis affect the dynamics uh, in in terms of the, the viability of these cases?
1: Well, It obviously means that the claimant law firms and litigation funders who support these cases, or you may say tend to drive them forward, they need to be able to recruit claimants in sufficient numbers to make the case work financially. If there aren't enough claimants, then the case can't benefit from economies of scale in terms of the costs incurred and may not generate sufficient damages to allow the claimant firm or litigation funder to make a return on their investment. Um, In general terms, where a product is faulty but the damage caused to individual claimants is very low level, even if there are very large numbers of individuals affected, it's not likely to be worthwhile for individuals to sign up to a group action, so in consequence it will be very difficult to get the case off the ground. In contrast, where a product has caused significant damage to each individual, it's likely to be much easier to recruit claimants to join the action, and so the claim may be financially viable even if the overall pool of potential claimants is not so large. And that issue obviously doesn't arise, at least not in the same way, if you have an opt-out class action mechanism, but it's absolutely crucial with an opt-in regime. Um, One thing it means is that lots of product liability claims that might have been brought in the US are unlikely to see the light of day in England and Wales. Um, I think it's fair to say that as claimant firms and litigation funders operating here become more sophisticated over time, we are starting to catch up with other jurisdictions and claims are now being brought in England and Wales that may not have been brought in the past. But still, the opt-in regime Definitely continues to make the landscape much more difficult for claimants.
0: So so how have product liability group actions developed then in the English courts? And, and I suppose how prevalent are they now?
1: Yeah. Product liability group actions have been around to some extent at least um, since the 1970s and 1980s, when um back then a large, a number of very large and long-running claims were brought, usually seeking damages for personal injuries that were alleged to be caused by pharmaceutical products. So the litigation that related to thalidomide and to opran are two of the early, very high profile examples. Um, many of those earlier claims resulted in settlements rather than going through to trial. But in subsequent decades, there have been other high-profile claims that did go all the way to trial. So, for example, claims related to infected blood products, um, hip, knee and breast implants and antidepressants.
0: So are all of these cases essentially personal injury claims?
1: No, not exclusively. Um, In the past, most group actions have been for personal injuries and those claims certainly still continue to be brought now. But we're also increasingly seeing group actions for economic losses caused by products which are safe, but which are alleged not to perform as advertised or perform as expected. Um, A major example of this newer trend now is the so-called Dieselgate litigation, Uh, which relates to allegations that car manufacturers used so-called defeat devices to reduce the emissions from their vehicles during statutory, statutory testing, but not in real world driving conditions.
0: So would you say that these claims, product liability claims, generally are are an increasing risk for product manufacturers and suppliers? So, you know, in other words, are you seeing more of these group actions either for personal injuries or economic losses?
1: Yes, I wouldn't say there's been an explosion in product liability claims. And I think there's unlikely to be one, certainly while the mechanism for bringing that kind of claim remains opt-in rather than opt-out, but there's definitely been a steady growth since these claims first started to emerge at the end of the last century, more or less. And I think you know that, that's in part due to changes in the law, such as the creation of a, a no-fault liability regime for defective products under the Consumer Protection Act 19, 1987. But I think it's been driven to a greater extent in more recent years by a number of other factors, um, including the increasing availability of litigation funding, um, the arrival in the UK legal market of claimant firms with experience of pursuing class actions in the US and Australia with their more established class action regimes. And also wider societal trends, such as consumer activism driven by social media, has played a part. I mean, for example, I expect that whether or not you've ever owned a diesel car, you've probably received messages or seen ads on social media feeds inviting you to join the Dieselgate litigation. So that makes it all more prevalent. And there's also uh, the increasing levels of regulation of consumer products and increasing scrutiny by regulators for compliance with those regulations, all of which I think makes litigation more likely than, than once it was. I think, you know, all of those trends that I've just described look set to continue. And so I think group actions in relation to defective products are only likely to continue to increase over time.
0: Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can see that. Um, so, obviously these are claims for loss or damage suffered as a result of defective or dangerous products, but um, can you talk a bit about what the legal base is for liability? So how are the claims framed in terms of the the main causes of action that are pursued?
1: Yeah, so there are are a number of different causes of action that consumers can and typically do rely on. Um, The three most important and most common are Uh, Firstly, claims in contract, so quite often for breach of the statutory implied term of satisfactory quality. Um, Secondly, claims for tortious negligence, and thirdly, statutory claims under the Consumer Protection Act. Um, One trend is that increasingly groups of consumers are tending to bring claims in reliance on a mixture of these causes of action, including the the three I've mentioned and, and others. I think in part that trend is arising because it allows consumers to include a broader range of claimants and defendants in the same action. So, for example, if claims were brought solely in contract, they could only be brought against the direct seller or sellers of the products, since, of course, there needs to be privity of contract between claimant and defendant, whereas, alternatively, claims in negligence and claims under the Consumer Protection Act could also be brought against a much wider range of potential defendants, which could include manufacturers, certainly designers, installers, distributors, importers, even certification and testing bodies. And, you know, potentially many others in the supply chain, as well as retailers who would face uh, contractual claims. Similarly, a contractual claim can only be brought by the direct purchaser, whereas the other causes of action aren't limited in that way, but can be brought by anybody, potentially, who suffered personal injury or other damage as a result of a defective product even if they themselves didn't buy the product and of course that's you know like what happened in the the classic case of Donahue and Stevenson back in the 1930s where the House of Lords held that a customer who drank a bottle of ginger beer in a cafe could sue the manufacturer of the drink for personal injuries when the bottle was found to contain the decomposed remains of a snail. Um, There wasn't any contractual claim there because there was no direct contract between the CAFE customer and the manufacturer, but there was a duty of care and negligence. And there are other um, advantages and disadvantages that come up between the different causes of action from a claimant's perspective. So, for example, with a a contract claim, claimants only need to show that the contract was breached, and that might most obviously be because the products weren't of satisfactory quality or didn't comply with their description, and that damage was suffered as a result of that breach. There's no need in relation to a contractual claim for the claimant to show fault on the part of the seller. Conversely, with a claim in negligence, of course, the claimant does need to establish negligence. And with statutory claims under the Consumer Protection Act, there isn't necessarily need to establish fault, but there is a need to show that the product was unsafe. So in both of those cases, it can be a a higher threshold than for a a contract claim.
0: Interesting. Thanks. Um... I'm I'm sure all our listeners will be very familiar with claims for breach of contract and claims in negligence, of course. But can you explain a bit more about claims under the Consumer Protection Act, which might be a bit less familiar to some?
1: Yes, sure. Um, Well, the Consumer Protection Act of 1987 um, provides a strict liability regime for products that are defective, um, subject to certain statutory defences, which which I'll mention. Under the statutory definition, a product is defective if the safety of the product is not such as persons generally are entitled to expect. So essentially defective for these purposes means unsafe. But safety in this context includes not only risks of death or personal injury, but also the safety of other products comprised within the product and the risk of damage to to other personal property. there have been surprisingly few cases brought under the Act, at least not cases that went all the way through to, to trial and judgment. Um, the focus of the main cases that there have been has been on how to assess whether or not a product is defective um, in accordance with the, the definition in the Act, and in particular, considering the question of what persons are generally entitled to expect. Um, the Act itself says that In considering this question, the court needs to look at all the circumstances, take all circumstances into account and that those should include at least um, the marketing of the product and any instructions or warnings that were given in relation to it. Um, Also, what might reasonably be expected to be done with the product and the time when the product was supplied. So you can't necessarily infer that a product is defective just because safety has improved in later versions of the product. You can't, in other words, use um, just the benefit of hindsight to determine whether or not it's defective. Um, Risks that are considered to be inherent in a product, so sharp knives for example, those risks won't make a product defective of themselves, subject to them being appropriately flagged to consumers through markings on the products or instructions or warnings if they aren't sufficiently obvious. So, as I think that makes clear, although it is a strict liability regime under the Act, it's not a question of absolute safety, but rather it's a question of the level of safety that consumers are entitled to expect, which in it itself ties into questions of reasonableness. And that's um that point I think is neatly illustrated by a Supreme Court decision last year, um, where the courts dismissed an appeal from the Scottish courts against a finding that a uh, particular metal-on-metal prosthesis used for the claimant's hip replacement was not defective under the Act. Um, essentially The Supreme Court found that the the, um, implant wasn't defective because these sorts of prosthesis have a a natural and recognised tendency to wear over time and to shed metal debris that can cause soft tissue damage in the people using them. And importantly, the claimant hadn't been able to prove on the balance of probabilities that the product in question was any worse than alternative products that were available at the same time as his own prosthesis was supplied. Um, in reaching that view, the courts, um, both uh, at first instance and on appeal, relied quite heavily on statistical evidence, which showed that the medical outcomes associated with the particular implant were within a range that was considered to be acceptable, and therefore it wasn't defective. Um. Also, as I mentioned, there are certain statutory defences that um defendants responsible for products can seek to rely on. Um, The burden, of course, is on the producer of the product to establish that one of these um, defences can be made good in order to escape liability. Um, For example, one of the statutory defences is if you're able to show that the defect didn't exist in the product at the time it was produced. Or another is that um, if you can show the defect was attributable to compliance with a legal requirement, or, finally, and importantly, if you can show as a producer of the product, if you can show that the state of scientific and technical knowledge at the time it was produced was such that you as the producer wouldn't be expected to have discovered the defect. So all of those are um, potential defenses that producers can seek to rely on.
0: Thank you, David. Um well, I think that brings us to the end of our podcast. So, I will just also say thank you to all of those listening and we'll be back with further editions of this series.